Luke chapter 2 tonight. I want to read just a few verses, starting in verse 25. The Bible says, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him. Now I find that very unique, considering at this time the Holy Spirit had not yet been sent in a permanent filling uh, type of position. The fact that this man was so close to God that the Holy Spirit rested upon him is quite significant. Now, it's not significant to the sermon, but that ought to tell you what kind of man this guy is, that God's Spirit rests upon him at this time period in Scripture. The Bible says in verse 26, And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he up him uh, in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. I believe that Jesus Christ is the answer for every situation you're facing. I believe He's the remedy for our country. I believe He is the solution for worldwide revival. I believe He is every man's need in every moment. And man, if we could just see Him tonight. See Him. The Bible says, if He be lifted up, He will draw all men unto Him. And my prayer tonight is that we will see Him clearly before we leave this building. Father, we ask that You'd be with us in this short time. Help us now as we study this man Simeon and his desire to see Your child Uh, and Jesus Christ, the Savior of this world. Lord, I ask that you would help us now in this time. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, I would like to tell you tonight that I am a very good mystery solver. In fact, I quite enjoy a good mystery TV show. I'd like to tell you book there, but I'm sorry, I just don't like books. I read 66 of them every year. But I tell you, I I do love the suspense that a mystery carries along with it. In fact, I love going to uh, things like murder mystery theaters. And and a while back, I remember seeing that the Cleburne Plaza Theater was running a show, and it was Clue. And so my wife and I, she loves the drama productions, and I think they do a very good job down there at the Plaza Theater in, in Cleburne. And we were watching there to see a show coming up, and it just so happened Clue was there. It's funny, and it's clean, and, you know, it's not really that expensive, so we decided to go. 
And they allow the the crowd to participate. In fact, it's played just like the board game Clue. They, at the beginning of the show, draw the people who will be the uh, suspects and, and, and the one that actually committed the crime. They're in front of your eyes, seal it up in an envelope, and then they put it over on the wall, and you have to guess the whole time. It's like a real-life board game, and they sing and they dance, and, and it's a really, really great show. And I would like to tell you that at the end of the show, after all the clues that they gave, I was the one that got it right. But you know what I've noticed about these mysteries is most of the time, and this is me, maybe you're much better at it than I am, I just pick up tidbits of clues here and there and essentially guess at the very end. Right, I remember from my days watching Scooby-Doo that it's usually within the first two people introduced in the episode, they're the ones that committed the crime. And so I try paying attention and I try eliminating the weapons, you know, the candlestick and the pistol and the, the knife. And, and I try eliminating it. And there my wife and our, uh, I are, we're talking, discussing back and forth as if I'm Sherlock and she's Holmes. And that would be the order of that, just so you know. But there we are talking, what do you think, what do you think? No, it can't be the candlestick because the candlestick was in this scene. And, and so we're going back and forth, deliberating, and, and we finally come with, up with our answers. We, we did not share them with each other, and I thought to myself, you know, after all this show, I am essentially just writing down a blind guess as to what I think it is. And then they revealed the person who committed the crime, and you're like, oh man, I was so close. I knew that the whole time. I was going to say that, but I had no clue. And so, you know, you, you just by the time, but they twisted it on us, okay? They did something that nobody in the whole crowd expected. So the whole time the show has been going on, over in the corner is this innocent little piano player. She's not been a part of the cast. She's not been a part of the show. And so they reveal the person in the card, but then they say, but the real, uh, uh, or the real criminal is the piano player. And then the piano player gets up and she runs to the center of the room ah, and like says, and everybody was in shock because even the people that thought they got it right now realize they weren't right at all. And then they tell you how it could have been the piano player because the piano player was there the whole time and you're thinking, you cheated. That's not fair. Yeah, I wouldn't go see it now. <laughs> but I, I, I was just so surprised by the outcome of that. And as we study our passage tonight, Brother Marshall, you're so unspiritual. It is unreal. <laughs> but as we study our passage tonight, I, I have to wonder if somewhat the feeling of Simeon was not similar to that of my own as I watched Clue, the production. I mean... Simeon, most people would believe, was a prophet, even as he uh, knew about Jesus' imminent coming, and then he begins to predict how the ministry of Jesus would go. Simeon had all these clues, and I believe just like Isaiah and Jeremiah and even the psalmist in Psalm 22 wrote, I, I, they all had remnants of the story, and they're trying to piece it together as much as they could. But I just have to wonder if the day that Simeon finally held God's salvation in his hands, he thought to himself, I would have never guessed this. Amen. But you see, as Simeon did look at that baby that day, he did realize that God's solution was better than any that he could have ever come up with. I want to take a look tonight 
at a focus at seeing our Savior. A focus towards seeing our Savior. I want to share with you, first of all, uh, in Simeon's life here, his focused patience. His focused patience. In verse 25, look at this, if you will. The Bible says, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, notice, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, you would seem as if you just read through the Old Testament and immediately opened your Bible to Matthew, and you're in your Bible reading through the year. You would almost assume that there's no real time passed from the time when all these men were speaking of the forthcoming Messiah and the time that now Simeon is waiting on him. But that is not at all the case. You see, the book of Malachi closes with the nation of Israel in bondage. They've just come out of the Babylonian captivity, only now to be under the dominion of the Medes and Persians. They are in captivity, but God is still speaking to them through prophets. Malachi is one of those prophets. But for 400 years, it just shuts down. Nothing. No word from God. No open revelation. No new preachers. Nothing. Just silence. Matthew picks up our story, but a lot has changed in Israel. You see, it ended with the Medes and Persians, but now Matthew introduces to us the captivity of Rome. The the children of Israel are captive to Rome. And not only all of this is going on, but Israel has so degraded themselves uh, socially, economically. For instance, their religious rulers were the most corrupt people in all of the time. You had tax tax collectors who were swindling their own people so that they may gain just a little bit more money. You had religious leaders who were trying to uh, outthink the system of law that they had. And so there they are. They are corrupt. The government that they are oppressed by is corrupt. And here in the midst of this very bleak picture, we're introduced to a man by the name of Simeon, almost as if to say he's an outlier. While everybody else is corrupt, morality is at an all-time low, here's Simeon, a just man, devout. And the Bible says he's just sitting there waiting on the consolation of Israel. Christian, it has to be discouraging for some of us that live in America in this time as policies are being passed every single day that further solidify our country's steps away from our King. Our country is taking steps more rapidly, and, and, and this is not steps now, this is leaps and bounds away from biblical concepts and precepts. The rulers that are being elected are ungodly and wicked men, and unfortunately they use religious terms as platforms to get elected by the people. It's a sad state that we're in, but it's no sadder than where Simeon was. And there he is just waiting. Waiting on God to fulfill His promise. Not only is His... uh, We notice His focus patience. Secondly, notice His fulfilled promise. 
Look in chapter 20, or verse number 26. And the Bible says, And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now look in verse 28. This is a beautiful picture in Scripture. This man who had been patiently waiting his whole life. There are some that would say that a Jewish tradition and in Hebrew tradition would have this man around 113 years old, which was exceedingly old for this area. I, to be honest with you, the Bible doesn't give us any indication at all of this man's age. In fact, he could have been a very young man. We just simply do not know. But regardless, we know that his whole life, his focus, his objective, and his goal in life was to see the Messiah. And now verse 28, this whole man's life is fulfilled in one verse. Then he took him up in his arms. How many of you have ever, uh, this morning, there I was holding Bailey in my arms, and I looked back towards the back of the auditorium, and there my grandparents stood, my mom's parents, and and they, they started their gait changed a little bit when they saw I had Bailey. They, you know, when they thought it was just me, it was kind of like, okay. But when they saw I had my daughter in my hands, Grandpa actually used his cane to trip Grandma. It was incredible. And there they were, they kind of, they kind of got to me as fast as they could. And, and there they were with our outreached arms. And I opened my arms. They're <laughs> like, what are you doing? We don't want to see you. Give us Bailey. So there I handed her over. And, and there Grandpa is holding Bailey. And he's giving her lovings and sugars. He hands her over to Grandma. And they've yet to speak to me. But I just imagine, in the context of that, what I, what I saw this morning. Could you imagine Simeon? His whole life he's been waiting for this moment. And he walks into the temple that day. It, it was almost as if just his tunnel vision focused in only on Jesus Christ. Almost as if there were no priests, no, no Mary, no Joseph, nobody else around, just Simeon and the Savior. And he grabs him in his arms. I wonder what was going through his mind. Can you imagine Simeon sitting down all those times and studying the scriptures that he would have had? Like back when God had, uh, had to fix a real problem. You see Adam and Eve had sinned in the garden and now he's having to fix what we've screwed up. And that's generally how it goes in our life. We screw things up and God is a great fixer up. And there God is in Genesis chapter 3. And He, at that moment, tells us His solution. He says, the seed of the woman should bruise the head of the serpent. I wonder if Simeon, as he's looking in the face of this baby, did not see the seed of the woman this day. I wonder if Simeon would not have recalled that time when in Egypt... The children of Israel were having plague after plague after plague performed in their favor. 
And as of yet, not many of the plagues had really affected them. But now they're to the tenth plague. And that tenth plague is going to be the worst of them all. And the death angel would go throughout Egypt and kill the firstborn of every single person, whether Jew or Egyptian. But God gave the Jews a remedy. And what was that remedy? The remedy was that they could take a lamb. But not just any lamb, a perfect lamb and a spotless lamb and a pure lamb. And he would be the Passover lamb. And there they would shed the blood of the Passover lamb and they would strike the blood on the doorpost there. And I just wonder if Simeon looked at this little baby this day. He did not recall in his memory bank the Passover lamb that allowed the Jews to be saved. I wonder if as 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 Simeon looked at this child, every moment where God told us about the forthcoming Messiah was not just cycling through his mind. I wonder if he recalled that time when God told Abraham to take Isaac up, to slay Isaac, uh, to perform a, a, a human sacrifice. And there Abraham, not arguing with God, obeyed God. He rose up early in the morning and he went on his way there with uh, Isaac and uh, some servants. They get up the mountain a little ways and Abraham says, now, now I want you to know, servants, you're going to have to stay here. Me and the lad will go on a little bit farther. And Isaac says, well, dad, I see the wood for the burnt offering, but I don't see the lamb. I don't, I don't see the ram. And, and, and Abraham says, don't you worry about it, Isaac. God will provide the ram. They get up there and they build the altar and and I can just, I can't even imagine what must have been going through Abraham's mind as he had to there place Isaac on the altar. And I'm just trying to think to myself how painful it must have been for Abraham to raise the knife up above his head, to thrust it into the heart of his child. And there God stood in the way and said, Abraham, don't do it. Don't do it. Now that I know you fear me, Abraham, don't do it. But that's not the end of the story you see because off just a little bit yonder over there there's a ram caught in the thicket and that is the sacrificial lamb and that's the substitutionary ram and Isaac would not have to be slain that day but the ram that God provided would be slain that day and I wonder if as Simeon looked at this child he was not just seeing a baby but if he was seeing the covenant seeing God's promise to Israel he patiently waited, but the promise was fulfilled. You see, when I go to the bank to ask for some money, you know what they do to me? They don't say, well, Mr. Wolfenberg, you look nice, you look respectable. Yeah, we'll give you as much money as you want. I wish that were the case. Actually, I don't wish that was the case. I'd get in some big, big trouble if that were the case. But I go in there and they say, okay, Mr. Wolfenbarger, how about you fill out all this paperwork? And one of those pieces of paper is a credit report. And they're going to request my credit history. And they look at it and they see how many missed payments I have. And they look at it and they see my debt to, to credit ratio. And they look at all these factors. And essentially what they're doing is seeing how good of a candidate I am to keep my word. Friend, today, if we could pull God's credit report, I want you to know He's never unfulfilled one single promise that He's made. If He was able to fulfill the ultimate promise in sending His Son, all the other promises are no big deal to Him. 
Nothing's too hard for my God when the hardest thing He's ever had to do was turn His back on His Son. And you want something that'll just bust your brain a little bit? Start wondering how, you know, we think about the Trinity a little bit. We think of how they're all one, but they're all separate. Now throw the monkey wrench of this. One day God had to separate Himself from His Son. If He's able to perform that that promise, All the other promises will fall into place. I just wonder if as Simeon holds God's salvation there in his hands, he's looking and saying, oh, God is so good. His promises are ever true. He's never yet failed me. No, not one time. Oh, he fulfilled his promise. And then finally, I want you to see this. Simeon's final prediction. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Simeon was not just a normal man. Most believe he was a prophet. And if Simeon was a prophet, no doubt he could eventually see, whether through his knowledge of the Scriptures or only God's revelation on his life, he knew what this little baby would eventually have to endure. You see, Simeon here says a few terms, and I want to share them with you in verse 34. The Bible says, And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising of many in Israel. That word is set there carries the same connotation as is laid, as a a, a tile installer would lay a tile in its perfect place. In fact, I believe with my whole heart that this is actually a reference to something that is said in the book of Isaiah. In chapter 28 and verse 16, the Bible says, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. You see, Simeon here is saying, there is coming a stone and he is a sure stone. Friends, so many people build their lives upon so many faulty things. But I've never one time seen someone build their life upon Jesus Christ and regret one moment of it. The Bible says, For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. The Bible, even Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, Therefore whoso heareth and doeth these sayings of mine, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. What is the rock? What is the stone? What is the foundation? The foundation is Jesus Christ and those that have the wisdom to build their life upon His sayings and teachings and those that have the... uh, uh, wisdom to put align their lives with God's holy word. They'll never regret it and they'll never think, oh, I shouldn't have done it. But they will always be thankful for the wisdom that they have. He's a sure stone. But name, make no mistake about it, he's a stumbling stone. You see, First Peter actually refers to the same verse in Isaiah and he says this, Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious. And he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious. Notice this. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, 
The same has made the head of the corner a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. Even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. You see, Peter here not only is acknowledging that Jesus is the only place to live your life if you're a Christian, and He is the one that will teach you how to live your life as a Christian, but he's saying, oh, it will not always be popular to those around you. Christian, if you live your life for God, the only person you'll be pleasing is God. Oh, you don't live this life for the applause of men or for promotion of men. You must live your life for Jesus. How often I've even seen Christians get offended at Christians for living a Christian life. You can't please men. Jesus is a stumbling stone. At at the cross of Calvary is the dividing line in history. You see, uh, sinners stand on one side and saints stand on the other. Those that love God and honor God in their life stand on one side, and those that are the enemies of God and the children of wrath stand on the other side. He is a dividing line. It is our privilege to suffer for our Savior. I remember those at the Sanhedrin Council. That is a unique story in Acts chapter 5. The way that the the high priest there, he he stands up and he brings these men in to question them, the apostles, and he says, you ought not teach, and he puts them in prison. He tells them not to teach in the name of Jesus. But something amazing happens that night. The angel of the Lord comes and releases them from prison and says, you ought to go to the, uh, the temple and teach again. Well, wait, what were they put into the prison for? A teaching about Jesus. Yeah. And now the angel of the Lord says, keep it up, boys. That was God's way of saying, amen, amen. You're doing a good job, fellas. And then the next day, the, the, the council of the Sanhedrin gathered together to call these men before them to testify on, on their own behalf. And they say, okay, guard, you go get them there. And, and the guard goes to the prison and he looks in the, in the cell there and he sees that the door has not been opened, that the guards are still in their place, but there's one problem. The prisoners are not there. There the man goes back to the council of the Sanhedrin. And could you imagine the tone of his voice? So we've opened an investigation. That's another way of saying we have no idea what happened. But when I went to look in that cell there, I fully expected all of them to be there. But to my surprise, not one of them was. At this same moment, okay, as he's concluding his story, here comes this other fellow. Guys, guys, you will not believe what's going on down at the temple. And the, the, the high priests and all the council of the Sanhedrin, they're thinking to themselves, oh, if, if news gets out that these guys escape from prison, this guy jumps into the scene and he says, guys, the guys who you arrested yesterday, the guys who you imprisoned are down at the temple preaching again. Could you imagine the council of the Sanhedrin? Because I imagine them all hoity-toity and high, you know, white wigs and whatnot. And then there they are, and they think, well, we better take care of that problem. So they send some guys down there and say, guys, you've got to come with us. And they don't forcefully take them because they're afraid of the people. And I love the fact that even though they don't forcefully take them, the Christians aren't ashamed. They're going to go. 
The apostles, I believe, walked right behind them in stride, going to the council of the Sanhedrin. And then there they stand in Acts chapter 5, before the council of the Sanhedrin. And, and this is what they say. And I don't, I don't know how to, I don't know what their emotion was. Like, I, I, I enjoy reading emotion into the Bible. So, so they could have said it like this. Did not we straightly command you not to teach in his name again? Or they could have said it like this. Did not we straightly command you? That's like your mom saying, Did you hear me? Do, do you have something in your ears? And there they are. Did we not straightly command you to not teach in his name? And there they are, and, and, and Peter and all the apostles join in. Now, the Bible doesn't say that Peter alone said this. The Bible, if you read it, almost paints the picture like they all in unison, maybe in four-part harmony, like a barbershop quartet there. They say, we ought to obey God rather than men. And then, to top it all off, there Peter is, and I believe he just kind of pulls his white hanky out there and he, and he gets on his little soapbox and he starts preaching to the council. And he says, Jesus whom you crucified. And he is preaching. He gives three points in a poem. Now, I may have made that part up, but he preaches a sermon to them. And they're cut to the hearts, the Bible says. And then they all take counsel together and they say, we got to kill them. And then this fella, almost as if he's been standing off to the side the whole time. His name is Gamaliel. He steps up and says, guys, let's think about this. Remember that one guy who we just kind of let go and do his thing and eventually it died off and all his followers left? Remember that other guy we did that too, just kind of all went away? And Gamaliel says this, he says, if this is of God... We couldn't stop it if we wanted to. And he says, if this is of men, it's going to fall down flat on its face anyway. I wonder why so many churches are failing. Why are so many closing their doors? If, if it be of God, even from uh, an atheistic point of view, if it's of God, you can't stop it. And if it's of men, it's going to fail anyway. But that's besides the point. That has nothing to do with the sermon. So you can take that for what it's worth. But, but there Gamaliel is, and they all think, yeah, you know what, you're right. That's pretty smart. He's a doctor of the law, so there he is in his white wig, I think, and he's telling them all about it. And then the Bible says this. Instead of just releasing them, for good measure, they beat them. And then turn them loose. And, and they, they command them again not to teach in Jesus' name like it's going to work the second time if it didn't the first. Yes. And the Bible tells us something very unique. That these men counted it all joy to suffer for Jesus. Wait, they've been imprisoned. They were beaten and now they're, they're under uh, governmental and religious pressure to, to silence and squelch their message. And there they are. They're giving each other high fives thinking, boy, you took that one right on the kisser, Pete. Wait. I'm sorry, that is not the Christianity we have in America. Amen. 
we get mad if somebody comments on one of our Facebook posts as if it's not holy enough for them. We know nothing of real suffering in America, and yet these men stand before a council willing to give their lives. Did you know that every single one of Christ's disciples died or were brutally, brutally punished? For instance, some were boiled in oil. Some were crucified upside down because they did not feel worthy to be crucified like the Savior. You start to think of real suffering and you say, Oh, Brother Andrew, I'm not sure if I want any of that suffering. Our theme this year is walking in His steps. And you read that verse, my friend, it has nothing to do with walking in the comfortable steps of our Savior. The verse literally says that we are to walk in His steps and conform to His sufferings, the Bible says. Christianity ought not be lived in a comfort zone. It's not a gray area type of deal. It is a dividing line. And Jesus has always been a stone that was dividing. We need to get off the fence. You cannot be in this world and look like the world and smell like the world and act like this world and be a child of God. You just can't. The cross and Jesus Christ is a stumbling stone. And even Simeon recognized that. Then finally, not only was he set as a stone, Simeon says, but in verse 34, he was sent as a sign. The Bible says this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel and for a sign which shall be spoken against. You see, in the Bible, God uses signs all throughout it. One of the most unique signs, in fact, it's one that we're actually quite familiar with today, is the sign after the floodwaters dissipate. There Noah is with his family. They are the only people on planet Earth looking for assurance from God, looking for comfort from God. And there God uses a sign, a bow, if you will. We know it as a rainbow to establish a covenant there with Noah saying He would never destroy the world like that again. It's a sign. Even at the cross of Calvary as Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world, there were so many things that took place, but without a doubt one of my very favorite things is that when Jesus did finally give up the ghost, the Bible says something happened off in the distance a little ways as earthquakes were taking place and, and, and the sun was just dark and, and all these things were taking place. But the Bible tells us of something that happens down at the temple. You see, everybody else down there is going around in their religious duties. No doubt not everybody was at the foot of the cross. There were some probably serving in the temple there and something happened. That day, the, the veil that was set up, the partition between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. The Bible says that God did something that no man could do. He took the veil and He ripped it. But it was not like any normal ripping, you see. It was from the top to the bottom. It was symbolizing the fact that Jesus Christ did what no man could do on the cross, and that God sent His Son to give us access to God's throne room anytime we want. You see, signs are all throughout the Bible. In fact, Jesus used many signs while He was on this earth. There He would be with a group of people that were hungry, and He would look at His disciples and say, guys, what do we have to feed them? And they'd be like, well, we have a, a, little, a, little, a couple penny worth of bread. And they didn't always have answers. And there Jesus was, well, let's see what we have. And Jesus would use signs to teach people things. 
But no doubt, the exclamation point on Christ's ministry was the sign after His death. You see, He was in a borrowed tomb, and the reason it was borrowed is because He wouldn't need it all that long. Nobody else borrows tombs, you see. Everybody else kind of... That's like saying, Hey, Brother Markham, can I, have a, I borrow a piece of gum? No, you can keep it. <laughs> Once you have it, it's kind of yours. Once you have a tomb, it's a pretty permanent deal. Then why was Jesus is borrowed? Why there that day did they go into the tomb of Jesus and they saw there the grave clothes and they, they saw the napkin that was laid over His face and they look in that tomb and, and I, I can just see Peter as he ran in there. Remember, Peter's only three days removed from denying Christ. You remember, Peter at this point probably doesn't feel right with God. And there he is running into the tomb. And there somebody says, He is not here, for He is risen indeed, as He said. Could you imagine the little lady that went to tell the disciples, you know, I was down there this morning, and I, 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 somebody met me there, and, and I just, it was, I don't know, I think we need to go investigate what's going on there. And they opened investigation and found that Jesus Christ was no longer in that tomb, for He was risen, as He had said. God uses signs throughout all the Bible, but Simeon even recognized here that the greatest sign that Jesus Christ would be the Messiah was not that He could perform miracles. Oh, Elijah could do that. Elisha could perform miracles. Moses did some pretty cool things with a staff there. People throughout history have done miracles. But Jesus did something that nobody else could do when on the third day He, by His own power, raised Himself from the grave and He fulfilled the promise of His Messiahship. Simeon looked in the face of that child this day and realized, God is so good. And I love what He says. Lord, I'm ad-libbing here. My life is complete. It's, it's, if, if you want to take me right now, I can. You know why, God? Because I've looked in the face of how wonderful your salvation is. What, what Simeon realized this day was salvation was not in a place. It was not in a plan. It was not in some pathway that leads all these many directions. no. Salvation was in the person of Jesus Christ. Friend, we need to kind of renew our focus on that. We need to stop being so accustomed to how good we have it. And remember what it was like to look at Jesus for who He is. Now tomorrow my daughter starts school at three years old. She starts school. And she is incredibly excited for it. I mean, we've been telling her for about a week now she's going to school. We took her to teach her, uh, meet the teacher night. And there she was. She was so excited. She wanted to go all dressed up. And, and I was laying on the couch that day watching the girls. And Caitlin brings up her lunchbox to me. And she had been making Bailey pretend food. You know, she's got this kitchen and it's got hot dogs and hamburgers and she'd been making pretend food and, and feeding it to Bailey. And I said, Kaylin, you're so smart. Here in a little bit, I'll look at her and she's got her lunchbox packed up with the pretend food ready to go to school. 
We get in the car that night to go to school and she says, Daddy, I've got my backpack and lunchbox. And I said, Honey, you don't need them tonight. We're just going to go meet the teacher. And she goes... And I said, We can take them. It's not a big deal. Just put them in the car. She is so excited. And I hate to break this news to her. But I deal with a lot of teenagers. And I were one. And when she's in high school, I doubt she'll be hitting the hay with such expectation and excitement to see school to come, to coming to, tomorrow. I just can't see my daughter when she's a freshman in high school saying, Boy, am I glad summer break is over. I've had enough of this laying around and doing nothing all day. I can't wait to wake up early and go stretch my brain muscle a little bit. Here's the truth of it, friend. We are seniors when it comes to how, how common and complacent we've become with Christ. We are like the high schooler that says, man, just another day being a Christian. Just, just kind of a ho-hum deal. I've got a feeling that Simeon looked at the face of Jesus with the youthful exuberance of my little daughter. She's getting ready to go to school tomorrow. Oh, I'm so excited to see my friends. I'm so excited to play. I'm so excited to do all these things. I can imagine Simeon there as he looks in the face of Jesus. He says, oh, I've been so looking forward to seeing you. Tomorrow when you open your Bible, friend, how is it going to be done? Is it going to be done like this? Oh, just another page in my Bible. Or is it going to be done like this? Oh, when I open the Bible, I'm looking at God's written word, which is the recording of God's holy living word. I'm so excited to meet him as face to face. You see, Moses met with God as face to face. You open your Bible tomorrow, you meet with God face to face, I believe. Are you going to be excited? We've just gotten so complacent with it all. I study a man who his whole life, his whole goal, his whole mission was this. Seeing God's salvation. Tomorrow when you wake up, I challenge you to try seeing God's salvation a new and afresh like the very first time. Oh, we just get so common. Just ho-hum. Friend, I, Jesus is too special for that type of appetite for him. The Bible says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. The Bible doesn't paint the picture that Jesus is just something that that is just commonplace. The Bible paints the picture that Jesus Christ can change your life, can improve your life, can make your life better. The Bible paints the picture that Jesus Christ is the whole reason that a Christian ought to live, and yet we approach it so commonplace. Tonight I challenge you to refresh your focus of the salvation of the Lord.